Welcome to the Vortex Nation podcast brought to you by lovers of hunting, shooting, public lands, the Second Amendment, and good food. Vortex Nation, how's everybody doing? Uh, We have Scott with us today on the podcast, and he is from the Wisconsin DNR. And before you go running or turn off your radio or anything like that, we'll have you know that he uh, is going to be a great guest. We we always make jokes about that here. I shouldn't make jokes about DNR. We actually like the DNR a lot. But, we love you know, the DNR. For whatever, it, it, sometimes they come over, they make jokes about it and stuff like that. They're so always like, after you with that badge, Jim. I think you right. left a bad taste in your mouth or something. Must have been. <laughs> Must have been. <laughs> We wanted to talk about, all right, so we've done Hunt Year Round in the past, and I guess we are we, we do Hunt Year Round. Basically, every month we talk about something that you can go out and do that's a super awesome hunting experience. There are chances to hunt around the calendar. Right now, we're in February, and I think we missed January. I mean, January, February, it's this crazy kind of show season for those of you not familiar with the, the typical schedule in this industry. You know, you got your shot shows, your Western hunting conventions, all this stuff. So we missed January, but January and February are very similar in that there's a lot of predator hunting going on. People talk about predator hunting quite a bit, especially coyotes. And we'd like to talk about predator hunting with Scott here, as that's kind of something that he knows a lot about. And... So yeah, it should be it should be super cool. Now, one thing that we'll say, and I'll stop talking eventually, so that Scott can introduce himself and tell us what he does. Uh, one thing we will say is that as we get going on here, it's not always guaranteed that Scott, uh, having being that he works with the DNR, he'll be able to answer maybe every single question we ask. We'll try not to trap him with any super you know weird questions or anything like that. But should a question come up that he's you know not at liberty to answer. We've given Scott the out that he can just say, you know, hey, we'll pass on that one. Maybe we can change the subject or answer it in a way that, you know, you might not get the the every single detail, but that just means it's something for you to go and look up and form your own opinion on later, or maybe go and contact your own local fishing game or whatever. What do you guys think? Did I do a decent intro there? I think it sounds good. I think we'll try and do a good job of not having Scott throw down his headphones and... yeah. <laughs> Can, can, I get, can I get like a lifeline or a poll of the audience if uh-huh. I don't know the answer yes. to a question? Phone a friend. Call my wife. And yep. There you go. That's probably the best bet. All right. Well, I've talked too much. Hopefully people are still listening. Anyway, um, Scott, let's have you introduce yourself. And like I said, maybe you can further explain what it is that you do. And uh, and yeah. Absolutely. Uh, my name's Scott Walter. I'm the, my title is Large Carnivore Specialist with the Wisconsin DNR. And in that role, I uh, oversee the management programs related to our large carnivores, which right now include black bear, wolf, and increasingly on the radar, our cougars. Oh, right oh. on. Right on. Very cool. Well, we're going to talk about uh, being that we have a guy like Scott on the podcast. We're going to talk all about that. We, so so coyotes don't fall under that large carnivore then? No. Our fur bearer specialist, Sean Rossler deals with coyotes not at, quite large enough i guess to yep. be in the large carnival look at me totally screwed it up on the intro <laughs> <laughs> i was surprised too i thought the coyotes were gonna get lumped in there like you yeah. said not large enough yeah so what so as far as what what kind of does it entail when you're when you're specialist on these large carnivores do you what kind of stuff are you working on with them and what's your projects that you get into 
Well, the cool thing about this position really is, first of all, there's an awful lot of public interest in these species for different reasons. Black bear, for example, are a very popular game species, so we've got a lot of hunting interest. Over 120,000 people, for example, applied for black bear harvest or preference points, harvest permits or preference points last year. On the wolf front, uh, you're probably a little bit familiar anyway with the contention that surrounds wolves. Uh, They're a wonderful Uh, beautiful and interesting wildlife species, but they do have impacts on farmers and sometimes pet owners. Uh, Hunting dogs are occasionally depredated by wolves, so there are these negative impacts that sort of spin the public consciousness in some circles to the negative bent, so I get to deal with that stuff. Cougars are interesting because right now uh, we're seeing occasional males disperse into the state. We don't have a breeding population, but when these cats show up, they cost quite the stir. You might remember in March of last year, we had a cougar in the southeast part of the state showing up just outside Waukesha and in the right. sort of suburbs yep. of Milwaukee and uh, a lot of public interest. So one of the cool things about this job is I get to deal with people who are very passionate, very interested. They may have different views about what the DNR should or should not be doing with respect to the management of these species, but they are passionate and interested. So I get to have lots of great conversations with great people around the state. Uh, an important aspect of my, my job, though, is population management. So managing harvests, for example, to ensure that we've got sustainable black bear populations on the landscape. We have had wolf seasons in the past, in 2012, 13, and 14. Wolves were not on the federal endangered species list, so we were able to have harvest seasons on wolves. In 2014, they were put back on the federal endangered species list. So uh, in that context, we don't have management authority right now. We don't have a harvest season on wolves, but we're still very involved in wolf monitoring. So we've got a very aggressive, very uh, energetic wolf monitoring program that tells us each year how many wolves we have on the landscape here in the state. So all sorts of little tendrils to my job, and it, and oh, including yeah. sitting here with you guys. I mean, oh, what yeah. could be yep. more enjoyable? How about on the cougars, too? Does that do... As far as hunting for cougars go, is that something that people can do, or are they on? No, How does that work? Yeah, they're, they're a protected mammal in Wisconsin, so mm-hmm. we, we don't have a harvest season. And again, we won't until we, we know we've got a healthy, established breeding population, which is well, well into the future, uh, for reasons, actually, that are based in the animal's ecology that we could talk about a bit, oh, if you're yeah. interested. Yeah, I'd love to do that. And I guess, first off, I mean, do you guys have an idea of where, you know, these cougars or kind of are these like adolescent males that are coming in kind of from an established population or what's going on there yeah we've got some indications uh about those sorts of things but when you think about the data we get it's usually pretty vague right like we'll be sitting in our office and a a photograph shows up it might Mm -hmm. be a photograph of an animal the the submitter thinks is a cougar It might be a set of tracks. It might be a pile of of scat that they think came from a cougar. They might have heard something on the hillside behind their house that they assume is a cougar. And the first step we take is to try to verify whether or not that is a cougar. And most of the time, uh, the photographs, the sightings end up being something other than cougar. Often, believe it or not, house cats. That may be some distance away, so it's a cat, but you can't really tell the size of it. Uh, Sometimes bobcats, fishers. Yellow labs sometimes are submitted as, as cougar sightings. So, but over the years, over about the last decade, we have documented five or six cougars in the state. We, we were able to collect genetic material 
from hairs, a little bit of blood in a track, whatnot. We were able to identify all those as males, and given the genetic evidence, we're able to trace them back to the Black Hills of South Dakota. Really? Which wow, that is so cool. You guys have certainly driven west. That's about 600 miles from our western border. And I mentioned, you know, the, the fact that a breeding population is unlikely right now to establish in Wisconsin, and that, that's based on the species ecology. With cougars, males, all males, virtually all males disperse. So a young male cougar that's leaving its mother in the Black Hills of South Dakota is going to head across the landscape looking for a female, and they disperse long distances. Females, only about half of the females disperse at all. The other half establish a home range right near mom, so they stay in the Black Hills. Those that disperse don't disperse nearly as far, usually 40, 50 miles. The longest recorded dispersal by a female cougar was, was 250 miles, so that's not going to get them anywhere near Wisconsin. Oh, okay, so there's only males essentially in Wisconsin. Yeah, so uh, far that's what we've seen, and it's given those dispersal, that sex bias dispersal tendency, it's not likely we're going to see a a female in Wisconsin. Hmm. I'm not saying it can't happen, right. but we've got no evidence that it has to this point. Huh? Is that is that an indicator of the, you know, I guess like those established populations being, I guess, extremely healthy, maybe too healthy, that there's not enough room for these males to have a home range, so they're having to explore new home ranges where they have room, but then now there's no females, and you you aren't. We've got a bunch of frustrated cougars in Wisconsin. <laughs> Bingo! You, you know you've actually you've actually hit on a topic that's generated tons of masters and PhD projects, tons of research in the wildlife field. This dispersal tendency of of animals is often density dependent. In okay. other words, if a if the population of cougars in the Black Hills was relatively low, those males could find huh. a, a home range nearby. But as that population as that habitat fills up those males are going to disperse across the landscape, and they end up sometimes here in Wisconsin. And I, I mentioned this long-distance dispersal capability of, of these young male cougars. In 2011 or 12, I forget which, we collected genetic material from one of these males I mentioned. That individual cougar ended up dead along a highway in Connecticut two months later. Wait, what? The state of Connecticut, not Connecticut, Illinois. Yeah. The state of Connecticut. How the heck unreal. far is Connecticut from here? Well, they figured that cougar went at least 1,600 miles, straight line miles. So probably Holy well over 2,000 miles. Jiminy Christmas, man. Yeah. That's a long ways. <laughs> I, was, I was like, what do they name it? Forrest Gump? <laughs> <laughs> That's crazy. So I guess in relation to that, what is the what would be an average home range of a male or even a female cougar that's just like in their normal area, not dispersing. It's just like, yep, this is where I live. How, how far are they going, I guess, routinely in that area, in their home range or whatever? Yeah, home range is a, another interesting little aspect of, of species ecology. It's often, it's hard to pinpoint because it varies a lot. The average size of a home range, even for cougars, varies a lot depending on the prey base. Okay. For example, how many deer are on the landscape, habitat conditions, etc. But They've got incredibly large, especially male cougars, large home ranges up to 250 square miles. Wow. Mm. What's the view of cougars from the general public and from the DNR's perspective? You know, when people see cougars coming into Wisconsin, you're talking about mostly male cougars. Obviously, it's not like people are trying to necessarily introduce cougars to Wisconsin. Is that... Wait, 
how do people how do people see them? Do, do they see them as a nuisance? They don't want them here. Is that why we're not bringing females over to then try and breed these males and create a cougar population? Or, well, uh, first I'll say emphatically, the Wisconsin DNR <laughs> is not <laughs> translocating cougars. Yeah, yeah, that's yeah. that part. We're, we're Scott gonna looked up the, into the left. Jimmy's line. <laughs> we're going to allow the the animals to establish as they do, and at that point. We'll develop a, a management plan and yep. decide where we want cougars, how many we want, if we want them, et cetera. Oh, okay. We'll, so we'll, if they happen to just naturally bubble into Wisconsin, then then, then it becomes a yep. deal. But we're not going to try and force the issue. And <laughs> with respect to how people are perceiving these animals, it's really been interesting. Of the three large carnivores we've got, only black bears have been here continuously throughout human history. Hmm. Right? There was a time when black bears were relegated to a dozen far northern yeah. Wisconsin counties. Their range, of course, has expanded. But in 1978, wolves showed back up. And the DNR, another thing I'll state emphatically, the DNR did not reintroduce wolves. Given protections, the northern Minnesota wolf population, its range was expanding, and they eventually found their way into Douglas County and have colonized about the northern third to northern half of the state now. But so that when you're talking about how people have reacted, this is a new large carnivore, right? Large mm -hmm. canines yep. may weigh, in the case of wolves, 100 pounds, you know, a large male wolf, yep. 100 pounds plus. They prey on livestock. They can take pets. So the way people have, have reacted varies depending on their background. Yeah, I mm -hmm. mean, if, if you're a livestock farmer, and you can understand this, mm -hmm. and wolves show up, that's something else to contend with, Right. There's a threat to your livestock, probably not going to be as welcoming as others who may just appreciate nature and think wolves on the landscape or the appearance of cougars now is just a wonderful thing. It adds to diversity, et cetera. So, mm -hmm. again, that's one of the cool things about sitting in my chairs. You know, you get to deal with folks across the board when it comes to yeah. these species. Something tells me that you've gotten the question about DNR reintroducing <laughs> wolves and cougars into Wisconsin maybe more than what I just had. All those big black helicopters you guys are flying around in, right? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, th I keep track, and that was the 4,968th time that came up, yep. <laughs> Good to know. <laughs> All right. I am now a statistic. So, <laughs> so in regard to, I guess, the historic range of cougars, mountain lions, lions, whatever you want to call them, we... Are those all I the guess, same thing, is, Mark? They are. Oh, Yeah. Just got different people. When call. you say when you say lions, I think of African lions with a mane. Yeah, I'd say it's it's interesting. We'll talk about that. Okay, uh, I Sorry. grew up interrupted. Everybody called them cougars, mm -hmm. but like when I oh well, you went to Washington State. Darn right. But I'd say <laughs> even say it even geographically, I'd say I feel like I've been removed for a little while. Like most people, like you're like oh you got a cougar tag like. People didn't say, like, oh, you have a lion tag or something like that. Right. But when I moved to Nebraska, like, everybody just called them lions. Yeah. Like, oh, you got a lion tag. Or I'm going to go hunt lions somewhere else. Let me just revert you back real quick. We said the phrase Washington State on the podcast, and you didn't say. Oh, I was getting there, Jim. Go kooks. Okay, there we go. <laughs> <laughs> so they called them lions in Nebraska. Mm -hmm. Do you find anything with that? Kind of the, not, maybe not nomenclature or what I guess. But like sure, when it comes to common names, uh, there are regional names for a lot of different wildlife species. In Wisconsin, you tend to hear cougar, but you're right. When you get out west, lion is more often the name applied, and that's hmm. why these. You know, I don't want to get nerdy here, 
it's easy for me to do, but scientific names are so important. Like puma concolor, that's the species we're talking about, right? Lion, cougar, panther, there's a lot of different common names, and it can get get confusing, but... Interesting. So, and then... I always thought they were different cats. (laughs) (laughs) Tabby, calico. Yeah. Um, (laughs) So, is there a historic record that there were cougars here at one time, and then they kind of disappeared for... Maybe you can expound on reasons why they may have disappeared for a while, but now they're kind of migrating back, or... Yeah, and the story's similar for all these large carnivore species. Okay. You know, using cougar as a a case in point or mountain lion or or puma as a case in point, they definitely were here prior to Mm -hmm. settlement. Uh, There are records uh, into the late 1800s, maybe even the first decade of the 1900s of cougars in the state, Uh, but they were extirpated. They were gone, like wolves were uh, over a similar time frame. And the reason was, and this was the era of westward expansion, right? Manifest destiny. It's it's our destiny to tame and settle all these western lands. And large carnivores and other predators were simply a, a hindrance. They were an obstacle to establishing agricultural lands, etc. So they were pushed into remote areas. Cougar, for example, the Rocky Mountains, the northern Rocky Mountains was really one of their last strongholds in, in the United States. Then you get later in the, to the 1900s, and the public mentality sort of shifted to more of a conservation or, or a preservation ethic. We saw things like the Endangered Species Act pop onto the books that protected these animals, and under that protection, numbers started to build, ranges started to expand, and just like a, a rebound effect, we're starting to see these species uh, move into Wisconsin. Interesting. Another thing you hit on was how the black bear range has kind of been expanding. Is that, I guess, how far south are black bears now? And is that kind of just due to that habitat becoming more desirable for them? Like, is the habitat changing, or are we just seeing more more bears on the landscape? How's that? More pots of honey. Yeah, Yeah. exactly. (laughs) Yeah, I'm glad you brought that up because that's certainly something that's on my desk frequently, yeah. dealing with bears in new parts of the state. Like I mentioned, 40 years ago, bears were really a species you had to go into the far northern counties to have a chance at seeing. Now we've reported, uh, had reports of black bears, I think, in every Wisconsin county. Wow. Oh, and again, all the way down to almost Illinois, huh? Yeah, and into Illinois. Yeah. Into, they've wow. had a couple black bears dispersing into Illinois. And yeah. like we were talking about dispersal and cougars earlier, usually the bears we're seeing in the southern counties down here in southern Wisconsin, mm-hmm. are dispersing individuals from that established uh, population up north. But even that established population, which numbers better than 20,000 animals now, is down into the, the central forest part of the state. Sightings in the Driftless area to our hmm. west here are much more numerous. So, yeah, yeah that population yeah. continues to expand. I'd lose my marbles if I saw a bear down here. Yeah, that'd be super well, cool. And yeah. see, that's the interesting thing, right? If you go up into, say, Lincoln County, bears are part of the landscape. People know to secure their garbage, to take their bird feeders out if bears uh, start to damage them. They've learned to live with black bears. You go three counties south, as the range expands, all of a sudden black bears are something new and people aren't sure how to live with them. So there's uh, one of the things that my program is really emphasizing is education and outreach. Educating people about li- what living with black bears means. Mm-hmm. When those when those bears are kind of not on the move, but as they expand that home range, is it similar with the cougars that the males are kind of the first to 
make that step or is it just across the board, males, females, it's just like, hey, we have a density here and we're going to expand? Well, that's interesting. So cougars, I mentioned, males disperse more often and further. With black bears, it's much the same thing. With wolves, it's very different. Males and females have about the same dispersal capability. The one Mm -hmm. difference between wolves and the other two large carnivore species, wolves are monogamous, right? So So you've you've got one male and one female in a pack that do the breeding. They're often called the the alpha pair, right, the dominant pair. Whereas breeding in cougars, breeding in black bears is more polygynous, right? Mm -hmm. One male may may breed with multiple females. But at any rate, whether or not those two things are linked, wolves are unique in that females can disperse and establish new breeding populations well outside the currently established range, whereas for cougar and black bear, much less likely. Well, I mean, it sounds like, I mean, if they choose to jam out like they're going as a pair like you when if they leave they're leaving as a breeding pair i mean is that accurate well or? not necessarily no wolves can disperse and and usually do individually oh but if you've got both males and females heading out there's a greater chance okay. that somewhere down the road they'll link up yeah what what is uh I know you talked a little bit about like 250 miles for the the home range of a cougar. What does that look like for a pack of wolves? What can their range? Because I know like, you know, I have buddies that, that own land in uh, central Wisconsin and they'll, it seems like they'll get trail camera photos where like the pack will come through, it'll hang out for a little bit. And then, you know, all of a sudden the next week or so it's not there. So are they just kind of on the move? Is that part of their home range, or and how big is that? Yeah, it's like we rehearsed this. You, you guys are asking great <laughs> questions, <laughs> and, and really relevant questions, because the wolf population in the state's been increasing over about the last 30 years, right? Hmm. But wolves do defend a, a territory, a, a home range, okay. properly because it's defended, known as a... It's known as a territory. Those territories average 35 to 60 square miles, say 45 square miles is the average. The average pack size, midwinter, after some wolves have died and dispersed over the summer and fall, but the average pack size for wolves in Wisconsin is just over four wolves. Hmm. Okay. So across established wolf range in Wisconsin, you're going to have about four wolves midwinter, Mm-hmm. For every 40 or so, 45 square miles on average. So it's like a, a jigsaw puzzle. Yeah. With yeah. The, the puzzle pieces being 40, 45 square miles. You plug those in across northern Wisconsin, that's how many wolves midwinter, again, that you can sustain. Right? Interesting. And the reason this is important is our wolf population's increasing. Folks that live in wolf range in northern Wisconsin see our reports and see that, whoa, we just shot up to 900 wolves. Mm -hmm. There are wolves all over my backyard. No, you've got no more wolves in your backyard than you might have 15 years ago. The increase in numbers statewide has been due to range expansion. They're occupying more area, right? But densities for wolves are pretty much limited by this territorial behavior. You're not just turning into a wolf tropolis. Right. That's right. That's right. Huh. So, you know, with wolves, you know, I mean, it's definitely, like you said, you get people on, you know, both ends of the spectrum about what their feelings may or may not be about them. You know, some of that is tied to uh, our great state's passion uh, and strong deer hunting tradition. What does, I guess, what is that primarily with the wolves and actually the bears too? I'd be curious to know a lot about them, but like, what's that, what's that predator prey relationship look like? They're, like you said, they're large carnivores. They're Mm -hmm. eating meat. Yep. I mean, bears, they're omnivorous. Actually, I think, well, I guess we're not going to talk about coyotes, but they're pretty omnivorous too a little bit, I think. But anyway, 
So what, what's that look like in the state? Well, that's an important question to ask because you're right. Uh, whether or not somebody hunts deer, it's interesting. It turns out as a major determinant of, of how they view wolves, mm-hmm. how accepting they are mm-hmm. of wolves in the state, how many wolves yeah. they think we should have in the state. Because the general perception is since wolves eat deer, everybody knows that, right? Yep. That wolves impact deer numbers. So if you have wolves, you're going to have fewer deer. And this is actually a very, very complex question to ask because it's not nearly that simple. Mm-hmm. If, if you did a quick Google search for wolf-deer interactions or wolf-deer dynamics, there's been hundreds, probably thousands of research projects on this issue. And we can't, there, there's no common thread, there's no ecological law that explains it. Because the way those two species interact depends a, a lot on the context that that population is found in. Mm-hmm. Are there other prey species present? Is it just white-tailed deer or are there elk or moose present? Mm-hmm. Are there mule deer? Are there other predators present? Is it just wolves or is it wolves plus black bears plus cougar? What's the, the full wildlife community look like? But generally what we find is that wolves do not drive deer numbers down. The two species can coexist very well together. And one of the things when we when I get into discussions like this, I often think about is a comment made by a colleague who works for uh, Glyphwick, the Great Lakes Indian Fish and Wildlife Com- Commission. He talks about native perceptions. When a native deer hunter goes out in the woods, if they see wolf tracks, they take it as a good sign because mm-hmm. they know the wolves are not going to be there unless yep. there are plenty of deer on the landscape. Okay, fair enough. So it's, oh, yeah. okay. it's a matter of perception, but mm-hmm. it's it's very easy to think wolves eat deer, therefore wolves mean less deer. Right. Can I ask a question that might get me crucified? Is if wolves <laughs> Jim, you eat, love those questions. I do. If wolves eat deer, you know, we're, we're not talking about, I guess, we're talking about growing wolf numbers, but... Talk about a state like Wisconsin, a lot of deer in this state. Yep. How many deer can a wolf eat? That was my question, I'm, too. I'm, I'm wondering to myself, there's so many deer in this state, I don't know if we have too many. I don't know if we're approaching too many. I don't know if we have just right or not enough, but it seems like there's a ton. Mm-hmm. Do, do <laughs> I don't know, is it that bad that wolves are eating deer? It's a good question. Yeah. You know, your first question, you know, how many deer can a wolf eat? You know, it's almost like how much wood can a woodchuck chuck? How many deer <laughs> can, a, can a wolf wolf eat? I don't know how you'd say that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but uh, that's actually been calculated because in, in these um, population dynamics models, when we try to predict mathematically the impact of wolves on deer, that's an important little variable to have in there. 16 to 20. Each wolf will, will prey on an average 16 to 20 deer over the course of a year. Over the course of a year. Yeah. That's, so that's so interesting to me because, you know, I've always heard from people like, oh, I pu- I've put a trail camera on a wolf den and I get deer there every day. And, I, you know, it's always that he said, she said type thing. And those are the stories that end up great finding through deer camps and stuff like that. That's why I think, you know, and, and I've heard stories, too, that a wolf, once it is full, you know, it doesn't want to go. Like, I think a lot of people have that idea of wolves as like a killing machine. Like, they're very... They're an apex predator, and, and 
they they have that idea that they can just go out and kill everything. But once a wolf is is fed, well, is it kind of dormant for a while, or is it still like right after that meal? Is it back out hunting again, or what is that cycle like? Yeah, and it, it, they'll take a long nap right yeah. while they're digesting. But wolves basically hunt, right? Yeah, that's what they do day in and day out. So hmm. once they make a kill, say you've got a pack. During the early fall yep. of six or seven wolves, they pull down an adult white-tailed deer. That's going to feed the pack. Right? Really? But not for weeks or months. Right. It's gonna, they're all going to get a good meal. They're going to hang mm. around for a day, and then they're going to keep hunting. Hmm. Yep. Wow. Interesting. But, you yeah. know, there, there's so much to this question. We could have a whole podcast yeah. on wolf-deer dynamics. But I was just thinking about this. To get back to the point, yep. this perception that many deer hunters may have, members of the public— that adding wolves to a deer population must reduce the number number of deer. Mm-hmm. When you think about some of the th- the facts we've already laid out here, four wolves for every forty square miles, right? So just doing the math, that's one wolf, say on average, midwinter, uh, for every ten square miles. When you talk about wolf, or I'm sorry, deer densities in Wisconsin, you might have twenty deer per square mile. So mm-hmm. each wolf is going to take on average five deer, I'm sorry, 20 deer, 10 square miles. But in that 10 square miles, we might have 150 to 200 deer. And a lot of research shows that the deer these wolves are taking are less fit. It makes sense, right? Oh, yeah. When when you were a kid and you got into those games of tag and there's eight guys running around, did you try to tag the athlete in your class, the kid that can run a 4-3-40, or did you... Look at that, you know, chunky little kid eating a Snickers bar on the bench. <laughs> Same thing for deer, yep. right? When they're when they're hunting, uh. if there's an older deer, a juvenile deer, a diseased deer, an injured deer, those are the deer they're most likely to take. And yeah. those are the deer that are less likely to contribute yeah. to the next year's worth of reproduction. So their impacts on prey are yeah. fairly complex. Mark, I can't were... stop thinking about all the times I got tagged. I was just going to say, you were it a lot. <laughs> 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 uh, I love that Snickers, though. <laughs> Does that... Oh, man. The question I want to ask is a question that will get me crucified again. I don't know if I should send ask it. it. <laughs> I'll send it. You can say no comment. Does is there is there thoughts where you know along the lines of like wolves, deer, CWD? Yeah, you know as far as some people say that part of the reason for CWD is because there's too many deer or whatever. I don't know. Yeah, can wolves get CWD? <laughs> uh, well, I'm just gonna throw out a bunch of stuff about CWD there. It's a wonderful question, and yeah, I'll answer it because it's really interesting, and it plays, again, it's like we rehearse this. It plays off of what I was just talking about, about wolves being very selective. Yeah. And they tend to, you know, target these these vulnerable animals, the right, disease, yeah. et cetera. Yep. And there's been some modeling work, and I, I want to emphasize there's no data from the field, no empirical data to suggest this, but some modeling work that suggests pretty strongly on the on the modeling side that the presence of wolves can decrease transmission rates and prevalence rates of sure. CWD in deer populations. Again, there's been no field evidence, but there has been a study out in a western state, southwestern state, I can't remember which, that showed that cougar preferentially prey on CWD-infected mule deer. Okay. Okay, so that's some empirical evidence that suggests that like we know, these large predators do. They're taking, picking off the easy ones. Yeah. yeah. If you've got CWD, 
as soon as that disease starts to impact the animal, they're going to be removed from the population rather yeah. than continuing to transmit that disease for perhaps a couple of years into the future. So mm-hmm. it's very intriguing stuff. We've, we've been around here baffling the fact that there's research now that suggests perhaps CWD is a bacteria, you know, and then you think about, you know, a uh, an animal or a large predator eating a deer with CWD, and it just makes you wonder, wonder how that works, how they don't get it. But Yeah, the... Nice thing about CWD is it tends to be, as far as we know, relatively species specific. It's, yeah. Uh, yeah. A number of species have been surveyed for the presence of this prion, right? Yeah. And and as far as we know, it's not in wolves or other carnivores like that. <laughs> that is interesting. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I've talked to several buddies that live kind of in in our area of Wisconsin in that <laughs> CWD endemic area, and they won't coyote hunt anymore because of the CWD prevalence that we have. So they've given up coyote hunting because they feel that, like, we have so many deer on the landscape, so many of them are, what is it, 20-some percent, or I forget what the prevalence rate is in our area, but they'll go, they'll let those coyotes do their thing rather than messing with them because they just look at that as one extra tool out there to remove CWD positive oh, deer from the Oh, I know. I okay, I thought they were not hunting him because they were worried they would have CWD. No, I no. Get it. Yeah. I get it. Okay. <laughs> you know, and, and maybe this is part of the expansion, right, you know, having, having a food base. But, you know, you get into the northern regions of Wisconsin. I mean, to my knowledge, the deer densities are quite a bit, you know, lower than mm-hmm. what we have in the southern region here where we have a lot of agriculture and things like that we're like a freaking um, deer golden corral down here we, we have a pretty robust <laughs> robust deer population oh i shouldn't well, have said that why because now everybody's going to come here and hunt our deer oh, <laughs> <laughs> uh come and get them just not here uh <laughs> just not my spot but to me it would seem like is it just a matter of time i mean the prey base it's here like if i was a wolf I'd be hunting down here. As a, as a human being, I spend most of my time yeah. hunting down here. Heck I yeah. guess what is the wolf range right now in, in Wisconsin? Well, they're across essentially the northern third of the state. If you drive north on I-39, you hit Wausau from there north, you're an established wolf range huh. pretty much. Uh, they're also throughout the central forest area. Okay. So like Eau Claire down through the sand counties there. Huh. And then there are a few packs popping up along sort of the periphery. Of that range mm-hmm. of southern periphery. But this is an excellent, again, we rehearse this all day because these questions are perfect, right? <laughs> yeah. So if we think about wolves and what wolf habitat is, 20 years ago, 30 years ago, we thought about wolves as a wilderness species. Mm-hmm. They required wilderness. There's no way they could live in areas like central Wisconsin, right? They need large blocks. They need Alaska and Canada. They can't live here. The reason we thought that is, like I said earlier, we pushed them into those remote areas in, in the 1800s. Turns out, and we've learned this over the last couple few decades, they can do well anywhere there's something to eat. Hmm. And so now we understand there are really two ingredients to wolf habitat. Prey, we got a ton of deer in southern Wisconsin, and human tolerance. Hmm. So I hmm. think the second is most important. 
right? Where are we willing to tolerate wolves? Okay, and so you're saying that part of that human tolerance aspect comes into it as far as if humans tolerate them less, they would hunt them and get rid of them or push them push them out in some other ways there well we're referring to in part it's it's in part the tolerance but it's also just basically having a lot of humans on the landscape there's a lot of roads in southern wisconsin a lot of high-speed traffic roadkill is going to be an issue for an animal that lives at relatively low density oh i'm sorry it's 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 the wolves tolerance to be around humans well, it's both. Oh, both. Right? Okay, I see. So it, it's human impacts yep. across the spectrum. So just human densities and all the things that go with that, like roadkill, but also human tolerance. The more often wolves and humans meet, the more frequently wolves are going to run into a human that doesn't want wolves around. And right. Yeah, I'm following you now. Yeah. I wanted to ask, so a little bit earlier we touched on at one time in this region we did have a wolf season, like they were considered recovered. We had a couple wolf season. I'm wolf seasons. I'm the proud owner of a of a couple wolf points that are kind of dormant right now. I guess what I don't know if you can or can't speak to like what were the contributing factors to us, I guess, having that quote recovered status and having a wolf season and then why don't we now? Huge. Huge question. So this this occupies a lot of my Way time. Way to go, Mark. And it's, well, it's sort of central to where wolves are at in terms of man- management capabilities across the upper Great Lakes states. So I'm talking Minnesota, Wisconsin, and Michigan. Right now, wolves are federally protected. They're, they're on the federal endangered species list, in which case states, the Wisconsin DNR, uh, don't have management authority. So we can't have harvest seasons. The reason we did is in late 2011, wolves were delisted. It, the decision was made. They've surpassed all of our recovery goals. They're more numerous than, than our state population objective. No reason to be continue, continue to be listed. They were delisted. For three years, we had harvest seasons. But then there was a lawsuit that overturned that delisting oh. decision, and they were placed back in late in December of 2014 on the endangered species list. When they do that, is that just in one state? So it's 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 that was just for Wisconsin, uh, no, or no? That, is that across the nation? That was across the Upper Great Lakes. Upper Great that, Lakes. That decision, oh, so they yeah. can actually kind of section it out to different parts of the country. Well, that's in itself a contentious topic. I just I just love contentious topics. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. The the delisting decision back then was based on this what was called discrete population segment. Um, the the original wolf range pre-settlement covered much of well covered all of the western US and and most of the northeastern US, so a big swath of country. Uh, the Fish and Wildlife Service at that time delisted the discrete population segment, the DPS in the upper Great Lakes states because the wolves were doing well surpassed all of our local recovery goals. But there were groups that objected to that because the way the Endangered Species Act is written, they thought didn't allow DPS's discrete population segments to be identified and treated differently. A judge agreed with them, boom. So, gotcha. And that, it's been a back and forth. It's, yeah. 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 So this, this Great Lakes population, like your discrete population, are they genetically or biologically different from wolves in other regions of the U.S. or Canada or even Alaska? Well, it depends on how finely you want to slice the pie. 
Okay. Uh, you start getting into genetic variation. Generally speaking, no. Okay. I mean, our, our wolves are contiguous with wolves in northern Minnesota, which are contiguous with wolves in Canada, and, and therefore westward. So they exchange genes throughout that region. So morphologically, our wolves tend to be smaller. So there okay. is some genetic variation that leads to smaller body size in, in Midwest wolves, say, as hmm. opposed to uh, Alaskan wolves, et cetera. They still get up to be about 100 pounds, though, a big one? A uh, big one in Alaska can get up to 150-plus pounds. But in Dude, Wisconsin... That is a huge dog. Yeah. yeah. In Wisconsin, big a, a big male would be 100 pounds. Okay. Maybe a little bit Okay. Better. Are we seeing that now, you know, just that we are a few years removed from that, that hunting season, are we seeing that wolves are a little bit more acceptance of, of human pressure? Or, I guess, are, how how has... The lack of a hunting season, has that impacted the way that wolves behave on the landscape? Yeah, especially after you go from no hunting season to hunting season to no hunting yeah. season. Yeah, because I, I guess where I'm kind of tracking with that is I was talking to a friend of mine who who spent some time researching bears up in Alaska, and I, it was somewhere where, where they weren't able to be hunted, and he found that those bears tolerated people a lot more and weren't didn't really have that fear behavior trait are we seeing that at all with wolves now that they're i mean obviously wolves aren't a threat to people but are we seeing that they're a little bit more curious around homes and stuff like that now well you you hear stories we haven't really quantified a trend toward habituation Mm -hmm. or you know a loss of wariness uh but certainly that does occur Hmm. you know we'll we'll get reports of wolves you know say in somebody's backyard or, or last year there was a railroad worker up in douglas county that had a wolf walk out of the woods essentially right up to him wow that's recognized as uh unsafe an unsafe yeah. situation <laughs> right please contact so, your local authorities um, do not recommend this uh, how uh, do, do I, not try this at home your discretion it's, advised what, it, yeah. it's it's part of maintaining that gap between humans and large carnivores yeah. They, one way to look at it, they've got to do their part by staying right. wild, right, and staying out of our business. We, we've got to maintain their their wild, wary nature to, to for their own benefit, right, to ensure that they don't cause conflicts that have to be addressed. But mm. it does occasionally happen. I don't think there's been a trend. Mm. Over time. If any wolf uh, were to watch my wife and I with our dog, it would probably be pretty jealous, though. Yeah, come in and <laughs> lay in the couch, play by that fire, and get its belly scratched. Yep. <laughs> sorry, sorry, wolf, you can't. Yeah, you that, can't come in. <laughs> that Douglas County wolf was just watching from afar, and some Labrador retriever getting scratched at night, and wanted thought it it would take. a Can little you bit imagine of that. your dog Cooper <laughs> being best friends with like a wolf oh, in your man. house? That'd be so bad. <laughs> it would be horrible. Also, probably super illegal. Yeah, a wolf in Most your house, definitely try and domesticate it. Am I right? <laughs> Probably not something you should do. <laughs> Probably not. Uh, yeah. <laughs> I guess Scott said earlier that's a dangerous situation. In yes, a rather unsafe, <laughs> unsafe yeah. situation. Well, I, you know, I, to back up, I'm not sure that was a dangerous situation. The wolf may have right. just been curious, but when yeah. they start to behave, apparently without fear of humans, right. uh, that's sort of a red flag yeah. in our world. And, and that's something. any wildlife species in general, right. you know? Mm-hmm. So, Yeah. One thing you hear, and I guess you know, I'm, I guess I'm gonna talk outside the state of Wisconsin, so feel free to answer or not answer. But one thing I've heard on a fairly consistent basis, and I don't really know actually true or not true, but when you talk about like 
the introduction or reintroduction in Yellowstone, sometimes I'll hear people say like, well, they put the wrong wolf back in. They didn't put in the right, you know, the wolf that was historically on the landscape. Like, I guess, is there truth to that? Not truth to that? Myth, urban legend? Well, again, it, it really depends. When we start talking about genetic variation. Yeah, okay, right. They're, they're all Canis lupus, right? Same species. So the wolves that had been in Yellowstone were extirpated, right? Right. So it was impossible to bring back a remnant, unless you get into some Jurassic Park scenario where they're finding DNA from some museum specimen and somehow bringing that back. So, uh, no, they did the best they could. One of the the things that's important with those types of restorations, and by the way, they're reintroducing wolves this year to Isle Royale national park up in lake superior i don't know if you've tracked oh that. really no, no but yeah due to that, that's a separate story we can touch on but yeah uh, one of the things they try to do is bring wolves in from an area where their prey is the same or similar okay so if they expect in yellowstone the wolves are largely going to prey on elk they'll try to bring wolves in from an area where they know how to hunt and, and prey on elk what i mentioned just a moment ago the uh, attempts now to restore the wolf population on Isle Royale, where historically they've had this really neat wolf-moose yeah. dynamic, really intensively studied population. They're bringing wolves in from right now parts of Ontario where they prey largely on moose. Huh. That, that situation, from what I've gathered, it, it sounds like those moose have basically, they're isolated on that island. This is a total sidetrack. But is I'm, I'm curious, what, what part, it's in the upper Great Lakes. Is that in Can- yeah. Michigan or Canada waters? Or So if you think of a, um, you know how Lake Superior looks like a wolf head? Okay, right? yeah. Have you ever yeah. seen it? Oh, yeah, the yeah, eye? Think of it, yeah. In the head, that's Isle Royale. Yeah. There's an island out there. It's actually part of Michigan. Okay. Right? Michigan owns Isle Royale. Gotcha. But it's some distance, I don't know if it's 20 miles, 40 miles, something like that from the mainland. In 1930-something, uh, moose made it across the ice to the island. Yeah. And their population started to go through these chaotic population yeah. eruptions where they would eat the balsam down to nothing, and then they'd starve, and then they'd recover as the habitat recovered. Wolves, a couple wolves, made it across to the island in the 1950s. <laughs> and lots of cool studies from that point on suggested yeah. uh, how the simple wolf-moose system operates and you know some of the issues we were talking about before about wolf impacts on prey a lot of the ideas were laid out based on that on that research interesting but since there were only a couple colonizing wolves their genetic variability was very low and over the course of a few decades uh inbreeding yeah you know reduced gene pools started to have an impact to the point where a few years ago they were on their way out inbreeding within the wolves within the wolf okay population Hmm. So and it's then been that a, moose population is thriving, correct? Yeah, okay, yeah. That's, doing very yeah. well. I looked it up, found it. Yeah, right. super, super cool. It does look cool. like a wolf. It head. does definitely. Oh, see yeah, that? That's a cool story. Yeah, that bit. is super. It's like cool. a little uh, go hang out in Windigo. But you know, if it's anybody's uh, watching or listening from Windigo. It's a uh, yeah, Windigo. <laughs> there, there would be one person. Yeah, <laughs> and his, his his name is Rolf. Be listening, but no. Well, thanks for listening, Rolf. Hey, Rolf. It isn't. It, it's been an interesting dilemma for the scientific community because initially moose and wolves colonize naturally, right? Yeah. The wolves are on their way out, so uh-huh. the decision to art, sort of artificially restock wolves is a tough one. It's a natural park. It's mm. a native wild system. Do we interfere? 
the decision, based on good reasoning, I think, was yes. You know, we're going to restore yeah. balance, so to right. speak, to that system by bringing mm. wolves back. But you can understand how that's kind of a touchy. Yeah, definitely. No, that's, that's definitely tricky. And then it, I guess the, the moose genetics on the island, are they swimming across at a fairly consistent basis to get that variability? Or, or maybe they're experiencing not that much genetic variability but are somehow more tolerant? It's a really wonderful question. I, I haven't seen or heard that question asked or addressed. <laughs> it may be that we'll, or that moose occasionally make it across on the ice, or I can't imagine they would swim that far, but make it to the island. It doesn't take a lot of immigration to give a population a big genetic boost. Hmm. Uh, an example of this comes from the wolf world. There was an area in Scandinavia, and I can't remember which country, where wolves, like an owl real, were facing the scary inbreeding and numbers were collapsing. One wolf dispersed from a northern population into that population, introduced new genes, genetic variability, population exploded. Wow. Or at least increased. But you just need a so, little bit, mm, essentially. In some cases, just a little bit. I might have been distracted by Google Maps there for too long while we were chatting, but you were mentioning before when I brought up the cougar thing and you know there's males coming over here why are we why do we not want cougars is that where we're not bringing females over or whatever and then we emphatically said that female cougars are not being flown over in black helicopters but in, <laughs> in the case of that island you know it, it's wolves not cougars but they are introducing well how do you how do you determine when you want to like i said if i totally miss this yeah then then just be like jim we already talked about this how do you determine when you're going to introduce something to an area and when you're going to just let it happen naturally if it happens? Well, you know, those are important decisions, of course, and I'm sure there are a lot of, there's a lot of information that goes into that decision. Um, Isle Royale, it's a national park, mm -hmm. so there's not a, really a human footprint out there. So introducing... Aside from old Rolf. <laughs> old Rolf. Introducing a species to that system is a little bit different than suggesting we might introduce a species like that into Wisconsin where there's a lot of people, there's agriculture, there might be impacts. It's a it's a whole different ball of wax. Okay. Okay. I see what you're saying. But, you know, the the park is it's a national park, right? So it's a national park service that really mm -hmm. and they 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 solicited a lot of input from scientists, from people, from nature enthusiasts and this was a decision they arrived at. Very cool. That is cool. You talked about, you know, predator-prey relationships. Like, I feel like, you know, the wolves kind of get the spotlight when it comes to, you know, deer populations or potential or theorized impacts on deer. But what about the black bears? I mean, we have a pretty That's robust good, black yeah. bear population. What does that look like? You know, I guess historically the northern portions of the state, but definitely sounds like they're expanding. I was looking at, you know, was it Region C? I mean, that's about middle of the state yeah. line-ish. Mm -hmm. are, are they preying on deer that much? If so, is it adult deer? Is Are, are they fawns that have been dropped? How, what, what are those guys doing? So in a former life, I, I was a university professor, and one of the, my favorite lectures, series of lectures, was on predator-prey dynamics. And this is essentially the question during one of those lectures we addressed. And it's interesting because, as I mentioned earlier, the impact that predators have on prey depends a lot on right. whether there are other prey, other predators. And in Wisconsin, black bear are another predator, right? So we've got wolves eating deer. We've got bobcats and coyotes eating deer. But we've also got black bears eating fawns. Mm -hmm. After mm -hmm. June, say mid-June, 
Black bear don't really have any impact on deer, but when there are fawns on the ground, they, of course, will eat fawns. And the reason that's important in the world of population dynamics and understanding these relationships, if it's just wolves, white-tailed deer, as long as the winters are relatively mild, there's a decent amount of food, they can make a lot more deer, right? Twins are common, sometimes even triplets in good habitat, so a deer population can increase. In fact, it can increase faster than the wolves can eat it, in essence, right? Okay. So okay. the number of deer added, again, forgetting about severe winters and their impacts on deer, number of deer added is usually, at least across some range of deer density, is going to be greater than the number of deer that wolves can eat, given limitations on their, their numbers, territoriality, et cetera. So that's one of the reasons we think in most cases wolves aren't going to limit the deer population. But then you throw another predator in there, right? Mm -hmm. And deer might have a lot of fawns, but if black bears are gobbling a bunch up, that can bring down the number of deer produced to a point where wolves can have sort of an added impact and actually uh, regulate deer numbers. (laughs) What we know about black bear feeding foraging ecology, though, they don't target fawns. When black bear emerge from their dens in the spring, they're usually filling their bellies with grasses and sedges. They're looking for wetland edges. They're basically herbivores. But as they're foraging along, if that's a fawning site and there's a fawn laying there, they're going to eat it. So they are eating a decent number of fawns. Whether or not that, in combination with wolf predation, limits deer numbers, what we can look at is our deer population estimates in northern Wisconsin in wolf range. And what we've seen over the last five years the number of deer and the buck harvest has been going up. Hmm. So it's pretty clear over the last half decade or so, deer are increasing. Yeah, regardless interesting. Of the predator community up there. Hmm. Man, a lot of large stuff. predators. I was going to ask one thing about bears. And Mark, you've mentioned going on some spring bear hunts in the past. Now in Wisconsin, it's a fall bear hunt, right? Yep. Now that's not unusual. There are fall bear hunts elsewhere, correct? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Right. But Wisconsin doesn't have a spring bear hunt. Is we, that, we don't. We don't. Okay. How does that work out? How does one decide if there's going to be a spring and fall or just fall? How does that happen? Well, you know, it's interesting you brought this up. I might mention that we're right now revising our Wisconsin black bear management plan. Hmm. Uh, it's been hmm. about a year in the making. Um, and that, that document, the management plan for black bears, is going to be out for public comment sometime in April. So anybody listening in on this, check the DNR website about that time. You can read what we intend to do in terms of black bear management um, and provide comments. You can help shape um, the nature of black bear management moving Hmm. forward. Now, your question, I completely forgot. So basically just, you know, in some other areas, they have a spring and a fall. We only have a fall. Is there a reason why we don't have a spring? Is our, our, our bears different? Is our population habitat different? Well, no, it's really just how you want to distribute harvest throughout okay. the year. We don't have a history of a, a specified spring hunt in Wisconsin. We've always had a fall hunt. And the reason I started talking about the management mm-hmm. plan, this issue came up uh, amongst <laughs> our uh, Black Bear Advisory Committee members not too long ago. And the decision, the recommendation that's going to be coming out in this plan is not to extend our hunting opportunities to spring. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think there are good reasons you know, that's when the bears are coming out of the den. There might be relatively low public acceptance 
of a, a spring hunt mm-hmm. that time of year when the cubs are younger, right? Mm-hmm. Depending on the female, there are risks associated both with potential impacts on bears and uh, sort of generating public antipathy mm-hmm. toward the bear hunt. In terms of access, right now I mentioned we've got 120,000 folks out there that want a bear tag. It seems like we could just, if we had a spring hunt, we could spread them out more, right? We get more access. But we've got to limit our black bear harvest to make sure that harvests and black bear numbers are sustainable through time. So it wouldn't add to the number of hunters who could get out in the woods. It would just shift okay. harvest earlier in the year. Yeah. So there wouldn't be value that way. Yeah. Okay. That's fair. Yeah, I remember we were talking about it, and we were discussing that, you know, the bear hunts in fall, and we were saying, hey, I mean, just being that it's Wisconsin, and be like, oh, I'd rather rather be out deer hunting. I don't know. I mean, I'm sure people have those different preferences. There's a ton of people, I'm sure, that would rather go out bear hunting. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yep. But Well, you know, the, the black bear season is prior to the rut, right? It's over well in advance of the rut and way before the gun deer season. So yeah. you can certainly do both. True. And, <laughs> Very true. And I, I would say that the, the black bear hunters that I know and associate with would rather hunt black bears than anything else. Out yeah. there and it was very passionate, very mm-hmm. engaged and energetic group of of hunters. What's the style of hunting they generally use for black bear? Well, in Wisconsin, you know, we've we've got a lot of different opportunities. If you want to explore black bear hunting, the the techniques vary state to state that are allowed by the state agency, but in Wisconsin we'll allow both hunting over bait, which is far and away our most popular. About seventy percent mm-hmm. of bear harvested are harvested over bait. And we allow the use of hounds, so uh, trail, mm-hmm. trailing hounds. Uh, about 28 to 30 percent of the bears are harvested behind hounds. So, very active. Again, very enthusiastic groups pursuing each. Okay. What are the season dates? That's early September, correct? Yeah, uh, the season opens the first Wednesday after Labor Day. Okay. So oh, that is earlier than I thought. Early okay. September, and it alternates. The first seven days of the season in one year, uh, it's only hound use, mm-hmm. hound hunting. And the next year, it's only bait sitting, in, hmm. in at least in the northern zones. In the southern part of the state, Zone C, which is essentially a southern two-thirds of the state, uh, the use of hounds right now is not legal mm-hmm. during the hunting season. Okay. So if you draw if you draw a bear tag, can you and and you want to hunt over bait? Could, let's say it's a year where the hounds were going first. Could you sit on that tag for a year and then hunt on a year? You would have to hunt it that year. Yeah. Okay. Gotcha. Yeah. You just have to wait a week during yep. your your season. Gotcha. Okay. okay. Unless you're in zone C. Yeah, exactly. It's all bait hunting. Cool. That's sweet stuff. Yeah, it is. <laughs> I'm telling you, I've got the greatest job in the world. Yeah. It's fun. That is awesome. Heck yeah. Well, we're sitting right pretty at an hour. What do you say we jump into last calls here? And uh, then we'll make sure that we can also let Scott get going because we're recording on a Friday here, right towards the end of the day. So mm-hmm. we'll, let our, we'll let him get to his weekend. But... What do you think, Mark? Do you have anything else? You're giving me that. I got one more thing. Look, no, actually, I don't. I, I have very little this time, Jim. Awesome conversation. Love learning about this stuff. I'm sure I'll think of 20 more questions once we jump off here. And I guess uh, my really one thing is I just I'd like to go on a ride on a ride in one of your black helicopters. <laughs> <laughs> that's my big takeaway i'd like to get is that because uh they're full of female cougars yes yeah. <laughs> <laughs> i'd like to witness the cougar transplant program yeah. can i uh, like, i hope again, that gets ripped out of context so i don't lose my job that i love so much again state emphatically 
that we don't. <laughs> I will really state. Yes. I'll state emphatically that I am just joking. Yes. I don't believe there are any black helicopters. I'll state emphatically they are uh, made up helicopters. Emphatically, my last call is that I was too distracted by your last call <laughs> to think of one. Uh, Rick, up to you. Man. I got two good ones to beat. <laughs> we didn't tell Scott what a last call is. This yeah. is usually something mildly related to the topic that we discussed. That's just the last thing on your mind before we bring it in for a landing. Okay. And ordinarily, our guests bring up the best last calls ever, so that's yes. why we we're saving you for last. Yep. Cool. No no pressure. Or if you have something awesome we didn't ask or didn't cover, yeah. yes, just please. lay it on us. Exactly. I don't know. I mean, I guess mine would just be, if, you know, like you mentioned how, you know, there's opportunity for the public to submit feedback and all that stuff. I think that's awesome because as hunters, we can literally help shape these seasons and stuff. It's a pretty cool opportunity. I think people should take advantage of that. And, you know, regardless of what people's opinions are about predators, I hope this is a cool resource for people to get to know them more because it's just, mm-hmm. you know, we I feel like we know so much about deer because we see them all the time. There's so much published information out there and predators just kind of fly under the radar as this unknown so that's true geez good last call rick that's what i'm here for <laughs> what do you think scott so i, I get a chance at a last call here yep. yeah this is can, just, I, yeah. can i have two yes, yes. last call oh, Please I, do. I encourage that mark is going to be really excited because normally he's the one with more than one yeah. last call yep. so. so the the comment that you know we're taking comments from the public with regards to our, our black bear management plan I think that's an important thing to note because when you think about what the Wisconsin DNR does, our, our responsibilities are fairly awesome, right? We're managing a resource that many people are passionate about. Mm-hmm. And public input is really one of the cornerstones of the way we make decisions. The difficulty is getting people to chime in. So when mm-hmm. I mentioned earlier that our Black Bear Management Plan, for example, is going to be out for public comment, doesn't matter if you're a bear hunter or not. If you're interested in Wisconsin's wildlife community, read it. Take a read through something that you think is great. Send us a comment. Something that you think needs improving or look to be looked at from another direction. Send us a comment. We do read those comments, and we do think about whether or not and how to incorporate them in the plan. The problem with public input is, guys, who do you hear from? The vocal minority. The vocal. <laughs> you, you run into that 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 squeaky wheel phenomenon, yep. right? The people that hate what you're doing or love what you're doing, you may hear from a few of them. But, again, regardless of what your views might be, it's important to hear from you so we can make sure what we do reflects the attitudes, opinions, and desires of the public. Second thing I'd say, and it has to do actually with the species not in my management realm, but Coyotes. We've been talking a lot about predators. Maybe something I this is something I used to talk with my students about quite a bit. Something I'll leave your listeners with, and I'll just say this: Coyotes are good. And right away, I've probably alienated seventy-two point nine percent of the folks who might be listening. In, but let me let me explain it. And and by the way, my son and I this weekend will be out on a ridge in our farm in Richland County, looking out over our predator call and and maybe trying to uh, get a, a coyote to come in. Mm-hmm. So okay. I, I'm a coyote hunter. But when we think about impacts of predators on prey, which has driven a lot of our, our discussion today, coyotes as a predator often sort of develop this negative connotation in the minds of sportsmen because they think they're eating the species that they want to hunt. Yeah. Right? They're wiping out the pheasant nest. They're eating all the rabbits. They're, they're destroying the turkey population. 
There's been a number of research projects, and to me this is pretty fascinating, mm-hmm. that suggests the presence of coyotes can be beneficial to small mammal and upland game bird populations because they displace and sometimes kill red fox. Oh. They, they will kill feral cats. They will mm-hmm. reduce the populations of other predators that more focus on nests and eggs and things like that. First study along these lines I'm aware of, in North Dakota, some scientists were looking at, at duck nesting success, what percentage of the nests hatch young, very important for long-term population viability of these duck populations, where they had coyotes. And, of course, they have coyotes everywhere in North Dakota now, but back then when coyotes were still expanding eastward, where they had coyotes, two and a half times as many nests hatched as where they didn't because where they didn't, they had six times as many red fox. They had more other predators on the landscape. Just something I throw out there for people to think about. Again, these predator-prey relationships are, are never as simple as we want to make them out to be. Wow. I like it. I like that a lot. Yeah. Very cool. Oh, also, can we note the fact you say coyote and you know your stuff. So, therefore, I say coyote. (laughs) I'm right. Jimmy knows his stuff. (laughs) I know my stuff. I am right. You say coyote, you're wrong. So, Jim, when we wrap this whole thing up with a bow. I just want everybody to know they're wrong. (laughs) Yes. Okay. No, I'm kidding. We'd love to hear, though, in the comments below this when we post it, what you say, coyote or coyote. And when you write it, likely, because it'll be writing in a comment, we're just going to have, I'm just going to point out that if you write coyote, coyote, actually, no. If you write coyote, you'll have to almost Just put an extra E on it if you say coyote, whether it's right or wrong. But it's right. No, I'm just saying whether it's spelled correctly. Yeah, put a, what did you say? Put a Y on the end or an extra E? (laughs) I don't know. How do you spell I don't know, Jim. I say coyote. That's because you're from Washington. <laughs> okay. Good time, <laughs> that everybody. Note, let's sign off. Everybody, well, thanks for listening. We appreciate it. Scott, thanks again for coming out. Thanks and, for having uh, me. Yeah. All right. We'll end it on bye. All right. Go Cougs. Bye. <laughs> bye. <laughs> All right. That'll wrap it up for this episode of the Vortex Nation podcast. Thanks, everybody, for listening. Hit that subscribe button so you can always stay up to date on the latest happenings over here at the Vortex Nation podcast. Leave us a review or comment down below. We want to hear what you have to say about the show. Maybe what you like, maybe what you didn't like. So that way we can make these podcasts as good as they can be. You can also follow us on Instagram at Vortex Nation Podcast. We'll be posting about each episode released. So that way you can go back, find these things, maybe grab a little nugget of information that you could take with you to the range, out in the field. Or uh, maybe to the kitchen if we're talking about some good food. So, again, everybody, thanks, and happy hunting and shooting. We appreciate it. Have a good one.